The following sermon was preached on May 23rd, 2021 at Antioch Presbyterian Church, a mission work of Calvary Presbytery of the Presbyterian Church in America, located in Woodruff, South Carolina. Organizing pastor, Dr. Joseph A. Piper Jr. preached this sermon entitled Some Ministerial Directions on 1 Timothy 5, 22-25. Please note that due to technical difficulties, we are relying today on a backup audio recording that is not quite as hi-fi as our usual production value. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit AntiochPCA.com or contact us at info at AntiochPCA.com. May the Lord bless you as you receive gracious instruction from His Word. Of course, for the last uh, year and a quarter, we've been thinking about the pandemic of COVID-19. Even this afternoon, be reminded uh, with our dear friend Tosh that this thing is still with us. But this evening, I want to speak to you about another pandemic that's been going on all this time as well, that in fact is more serious. This is the pandemic of ministerial failure. The scandal of our time, where month after month, almost every month, we, we, we learn of friends, ribbon elders and, and teaching elders, and of prominent men uh, in the church throughout the world falling into either gross moral sin or gross sins of doctrine. That's not been like this in every age of the church. There are times when it is into this awful decline that we experience here and around the world in the mission field and many other places. Well, I think of at least a couple of contributing factors uh, one is, yes, that we do live under a bombardment of a sexual temptation, of worldliness, and of error. Uh, my, my first trip to Britain was back in the 70s. It was either that trip or the next time uh, I came back and I said, uh, I've seen the future, and it's not nice. Because in England, Scandalous pornographic billboards. Uh, just you're being bombarded with these things, and, and now with all the different media, everything is going on. We're constantly bombarded with sexual temptation, and that's obviously one reason uh, men and women not guarding their hearts are falling into sin rapidly. I think a second reason, and I think probably a more serious reason, is the failure of our seminaries. There's a lower level of ministerial education and expectation, both in terms of how a man thinks biblically and theologically, but there's also an absence of emphasis on piety. I was quite thrilled at the graduation banquet this past Thursday night. The common thread from our graduates was that we pressed them to godliness. And they had a good education. I'll put it up against anybody's. There was never a void of a call to personal godliness. We must see that renewed in our seminaries. But there's a third reason, and it's come to me as I've meditated on this text, and that is the failure of the church. So, yes, there's the bombardment of the culture, there's the failure of the seminaries and theological institutions, but uh, there is a failure of the church as well. And that's what Paul addressing here this last paragraph of 1st Timothy chapter 5 
uh, this whole matter of inducting men into the gospel ministry. So you remember in chapter 5, he's been dealing with the minister and personal relationships within the congregation. How does one exhort and admonish? He lays out the patterns for the pastor, but we saw in that that this is how we are to live together, uh, how we're to deal with one another. And then the very lengthy section where he deals with the church's responsibility to those who are truly indigent widows, and by inference, any other indigent people that would be in our midst. The church has a responsibility, but he pointed out the family also has the first responsibility. And now God's given us deacons to shepherd us in exercising these responsibilities. And then last Lord's Day, uh, we looked at the matter of the care of the gospel ministry. And the church does have that responsibility. And we saw that in terms of his physical maintenance. But also, and more closely related to this last paragraph of chapter 5, is related to his spiritual protection and uh, provisions for him. But he's not to be slandered, but nor is he to be uh, protected in his sins. Uh, and we must also avoid uh, injustice in dealing uh, with him. So we come here then, and what, what the Spirit is showing us is how God leads the church in inducting men into the gospel ministry. So we're going to look at uh, these two, uh, three points that are there on the uh, end of your program. The need of caution in selection and ordination of ministers. The need for balance in the selection and ordination of ministers and ruling others. And the need for confidence. And 22a is our first point. Uh, the church must exercise caution as it inducts men into the ministry. Look at what Paul, what Paul writes to Timothy, the first half of the verse, do not lay hands upon anyone too hastily. He's talking here about this matter of ordination. And I want to give you a definition of ordination as was given to us by James Bannerman. Ordination is a solemn act of the church admitting a man to the office of the ministry and giving him a right and title to discharge of its functions. Ordination is a solemn act of the church admitting a man to the office of the ministry and giving him a right and title to the discharge to discharge its function. Now it's important to keep in mind if you think of the solemnity of this act, ordination does not call a man. Ordination does not invest the man with the office. Who does that? Christ, the King of the Church. He calls by the Spirit through uh, uh, preparation of gifts and spiritual qualifications. And we've talked before about the procedure then of the internal call, the desire for the ministry, uh, the preparation of gifts, the growth we call in, in godliness, and the recognition of those things then by the Church that will call a man, Christ working through them, and being confirmed then by the Presbytery. That is Christ's call to office. But ordination then is to induct a man into that office. And we see in this text, it's no light thing. But Paul says, do not lay hands on hastily. 
throughout the New Testament, as we have the various descriptions of ordination, it took place by the laying on of hands of the elders, the ruling elders and the teaching elders. This is an act that Christ himself, by the example of the church, has appointed for the church. And this laying on of hands is a solemn official act in which the man is inducted into office with prayer that the Spirit then will anoint the gifts that he's given him and heighten them as he gives to him the authority now in the church to exercise this office. You see, it is, it's, no, it's no light thing, this matter then of, uh, of ordination. And Paul's commandment here is not to do this hastily. Do not lay hands, obviously talking from the context, he talks in chapter 4 about the laying on the hands. Do not lay hands upon anyone hastily. Now the New American Standard adds the adverb to, T-O-O. That's implied in this idea of haste. So what are some ways that this haste can manifest itself in laying on of hands, and I'm particularly wanting to focus this afternoon on ruling and teaching elders. Well, one of the first factors is simply ignorance. Ignorance. It's interesting, we looked at the qualifications for deacons, and Paul said the deacon was to be tested, then put into office. But the qualifications with respect to elders, uh, the Spirit says that uh, we're not to put neophytes into office, which implies what? Testing, uh, observing spiritual maturity, watching this man uh, in his household is one of the things that Paul uh, tells us to do. Observing his uh, blamelessness and his character. And it's just at times that the church acts in ignorance, does not carefully investigate uh, hastily sets aside a man to gospel office. Another problem is partiality. This is my friend. Oh, I realize he's not quite up to snuff and maybe every area they ought to be, but he's my friend and I can't speak against him. I, I can't vote against him. I had a problem uh, 30 something years ago. Probably a combination of ignorance and partiality. We've been sent a young man who had, in the university, been a homosexual, had repented, had lived for a period of time uh, a godless and chaste life. And so we thought by the time he was ready for ordination that uh, we could ordain him. And then one year, we got word that he had been discovered uh, at one of the places on the interstate. And uh, I had gone in my car, the friend who recommended him to me drive over there, confront him, and demand that he admit the ministry. But this goes on lots of times without men ever following up or ever finding out. And so we must have been careful of partiality of just giving people the, the um, well, we'll give them a pass because we know they're okay. Another problem with laying hands on hastily is pragmatism. Well, this is a small church, and you know, they really need they need some elders. You know, we're a small church. We're going to need some elders. That little church needs uh, 
the ministry. You know, I think I think Joe will agree, but we see this on the mission field. We see men that we would not ordain to take any decent-sized PCA church, quickly ordained by the Presbytery because they want to go to the mission field. Where we have this awful attitude about this most glorious work that God has given the church. Or today we're seeing it in reverse racism, which is, well, he hadn't had the opportunity to have the education now out of this culture that you guys have had, and so we we just need to go ahead and uh, his church needs uh, office bearers. Pragmatism then lays hands on uh, to the fourth cause is what I call wrong priorities. Uh, and you'll find this as you're involved in different presbyteries that um, there are men in the presbyteries that really don't care for the examination part. They don't like having been kept there for, for three hours at a presbytery meeting as we were trying to examine these men. And they complain about it. Well, there's nothing more important that we do than whether to hear a, a, a a complaint or a, a, a discipline appeal, or, or come together to plant churches. This is what we're all about, and yet they don't want to do it. They don't want to do it. And then there's a fifth cause. It's almost the opposite of that, and that is you get tired of being the, the meanie, the bad guy. The one who is standing up and asking the hard question. And everybody's like, oh, there he goes again. And so you, you're tempted to be silent, knowing that all you're going to do is, is raise the ire of your brother elders at the presbytery. But your silence contributes to laying hands on hastily. So these five, five things that we do, ignorance, partiality, pragmatism, wrong priorities, or fear of men, contribute to this reality of inducting a man into the ministry. Remember now, the induction is not the call. It's not the investment of the office. That's to come from Christ. And what we're doing, we lay hands on hastily as the church is declaring Christ has called this man into the ministry. But if we have done so hastily, how do we know that Christ has called this man into ministry? Well, Paul then shows us the seriousness of this prohibition, this commandment, when he says, doing so, they share the responsibility for the sins of others. Let hands on men hastily, thereby, he says, um, they're going to share in the sin. You'll notice that for responsibility is an italics, at least in the New American Standard. But that's just what this idea share means. This is the word, our word koinonia. It's the word for fellowship, for participation. It's used for the Lord's Supper. It's used for Christian fellowship, for communion of the saints. And so it is a, a word of, of, of communion and bond. And because of this organic connection that Christ has appointed in the church through this work of ordination, of laying out of hands, there's a bonding that takes place. There's a participation in the, in the man and in his ministry. And if we lay hands on hastily, Christ then says that we share in the sins of others. Yes, we share in the sins of those who have rushed him into office, but more seriously, we share in his sins. As he ruins a congregation, as he ruins a family, as he leaves people 
astray. We have participated in that by laying hands on hastily. And then there's the whole matter of corporate guilt, which is part of our Presbyterian theology. Is that uh, it's not just individually, but as a church, we share in the responsibility. It's the church through whom the Spirit of Christ uh, inducts these men into office. And the whole church now is entailed in sin and in the consequences of sin. Isn't that a logical connection? I was talking to my brother a while ago about what we face in the PCH Home Assembly, the side B homosexuality and uh, critical race theory. There's some connection between laying hands on men hastily the things that they're teaching and propagating and confessing now. Is it not that we have many men today in the gospel ministry, even in our Reformed churches, who are not called? Gilbert Tennant got in trouble back during the Great Awakening. He was probably too pointed in his accusation, saying they were unconverted. But I do think we have grounds to say that by their false teaching, by their lifestyle, they're not called the damage to the church, Lord Jesus Christ. Even as those prophets announced by God through Jeremiah. Men who came calling peace, peace, when there is no peace. What is it when you tell a person, well, yeah, you've got this uh, homosexual nature. It's of sin, but it's not sin. And you can't mortify it. Is that not saying peace when there is no peace? Is that a call of gospel sanctification? Is that not a denial of the power of the Holy Spirit who has regenerated us? The very God has said that there be light and brought the world into existence, indwells every single one whom he has regenerated. Oh, we're doing great damage. Reported GRN meeting from John Payne that he is getting frequent calls from people that they're not hearing the gospel in their churches. I had a church that in the past, never would have been, in fact, they didn't even know about Greenville Seminary. Never would have approached Greenville Seminary for a pastor. All we're getting here guys that want to preach social sciences. I was, I was told we want to have a different kind of graduate. That's where we are. The church is suffering. So the first thing is we must learn to exercise caution. The second, there must be a need for balance. You see, a call to caution calls us to be hyper-cautious and cause us to go too far. Isn't that we do what we are as human beings? It's a weird pendulum. We're going too far one way, then we'll go too back and go too far the other way. And that's why Paul here asserts what I'm interpreting to be a call to balance. So he's addressing Timothy, the pastor, the evangelist. After talking about uh, sharing sins of others, he then gives a commandment, keep yourself free from sin. No longer drink water exclusively, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. That seems to be a strange mixture. The first commandment we understand easily. He's simply uh, recapitulating what he said in chapter 3 with the qualification of elders, when he, how he began this chapter, that even as uh, Timothy uh, will admonish uh, younger women in the church, he is to do so in all purity. It's the same word. He's reminding him that in his own life and in the lives of others, he will 
participate in laying out of hands, there must be a commitment to chastity. We read that in Revelation, right? Uh, that the, the elect are chaste. They've not been defiled with women. There's a call to purity and chastity, which here is put not just for sexual purity, but for gospel holiness. And yes, Timothy is reminded once again to be committed to gospel holiness. He's been reminded that the men that are set aside in ministry must be men committed to gospel holiness. But in fact, he's being reminded that every person in the congregation, man, woman, boy, or girl, is to be committed to gospel holiness. What does Paul say? Whoever wrote it, Hebrews. Without sanctification, no one shall see the Lord. As you sit here this afternoon, you let the Spirit probe your conscience. Can you honestly say, I am committed to gospel holiness? I know my remnant of sin. I struggled with these things. I know I'm not perfect, and I never shall be in this life. But as my confession teaches me that there is a slow but sure victory over indwelling sin. In my commitment, I can see that I'm, and I'm pressing on forward and forward into gospel holiness. I've said it to you many times, if you have no commitment to holiness, then you're unconverted. It's not something you can say the words. Walk an aisle, pray the prayer. No, if you truly receive Christ, as I just said earlier, that means the Spirit of Christ has given you a new heart and dwells you. You're hungry and thirsty for righteousness. So Timothy was to have that, and he was to have that, and look for that in others. But why this personal thing now? In the middle of this business about the, the minister and ordination, why does Paul add this little advice to, uh, to Timothy? No longer drink water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. Well, we can read in and between the lines about Timothy's personality. He was diffident, he was timid, he was fearful, he was probably a worrier. And um, he probably then, that led him to extremes, recognizing his youth and, and the calling, uh, extremes of asceticism. He, was, he wrote himself too hard. Uh, between those, the fears and writing himself so hard, he's developed stomach problems. And so Paul simply says, you know, you got to get a balance to your life. Quit drinking the water. Of course, that's probably safe for anybody. Uh, in some countries, you're going to have to drink wine or beer, not the water. But uh, quit drinking water exclusively and take wine because of your digestive problems. Now, Paul wasn't simply being the doctor prescribing a, a, a procedure. What he's saying is, Timothy, you've got to balance out. You are driving yourself too hard. You have created standards for yourself that are too high. And that's this call now to balance. Yes, in our own lives. So as I meditated this, I, I thought about uh, Ecclesiastes 7.16, where Solomon says, do not be overly righteous. Now, how can you be overly righteous? By going beyond the standards of God's law. By driving yourself with a sense of failed perfectionism, that you become morbid in your introspection, you lose all joy in your Christian experience. But more so, you begin to live by other rules. You drive yourself, and so you develop this uh, asceticism or 
are things that go beyond Scripture. That's being overly righteous. To set for myself a standard that is beyond Scripture. And so Paul is saying that Timothy, you've got to be balanced. In your personal decisions, you must be balanced. In your discipline of your life, you must be balanced. Now let's apply this to this matter of examination for men for ordination. Because I do think it fits here. And that is that, yes, we are to apply the standards of God's Word, but if you think back a few weeks ago, what we said was that your, your qualifications, that they must be comprehensive, and that there can't be a big gap or gaps, but not perfect. There must be a, a measure of conformity, but not perfection. And so sometimes, uh, because of the warning, Paul's thinking that somebody like Timothy, who goes to extremes with himself, could go to extremes with the the men on whom he would lay hands. He said, no, we must keep to a biblical standard. We must be balanced. We're not looking for perfectionism. We recognize that they're sinners. How they deal with sin is as important as the qualifications that are manifested in their life. And then, of course, there's the problem of, of many of our churches where we add to the biblical qualifications. Um, you must homeschool. Or you must not homeschool. You must not use public school. Or you must use public school. You must not have a TV in your home. You must not watch movies. You must not use alcohol. And we have churches that add all of these man-made, overly righteous qualifications. Maybe it comes out of their experience, their convictions, but it is improper to impose it on an ordinary or church. That's what I mean when I say that even as we exercise caution, we must exercise balance. And that's also true for men that are seeking ministry. We must not drive ourselves to uh, extremes. Um, we must be balanced in our lifestyle and reflect the beauty and glory of God the Creator. Well, at this point, we're kind of playing a rock in a hard place. Exercise caution. But be balanced. Who in the world? How am I going to ordain And so he goes on to his last point is the need for confidence. What he's saying now in this last two verses is uh, be careful, be careful, but don't trip all over yourself for fear you're going to participate in the sins of others. The sins of some men are quite evident, verse 24, going before them to judgment. For others, their sins follow after. Likewise also, deeds that are good are quite evident, and those which are otherwise cannot be conceived. What Paul is saying here is that with prayerful examination, in most cases, the sins of a man will be evident. His disqualifications will be evident. You just cannot be careless or uh, Accidental in your approach to this examination because their sins are going to be evident. They, they, they're going before them in judgment. Is that it's it's obvious this man is not yet fit, maybe never be fit. This man is not even converted. Um, their sins will be obvious and go before them to judgment. Likewise, deeds that are good are also evident. And so, again, he's saying is that with careful examination, 
in no man, testing the man, that it's going to be obvious that this man is qualified and this man isn't qualified. That is a confidence that we can use. Does that mean that we will never make a mistake? There's a difference in a sincere mistake where we've used the means and heard and a mistake that happens because of those reasons that I gave you earlier. So yes, we're going to deal with hypocrites. Self-righteous hypocrites. I was trying to say this a while ago when I talked about not being overly righteous. Just, I think a very good pastoral thing to keep in mind. It's been my experience. Anytime an elder, ruin or teaching, becomes censorious and self-righteous, you're going to find sin in his life. It's almost unbearable. I don't go around looking for this, and, and, and on the basis, and you're going to have two or three witnesses. But they should put your antenna out. Uh, and there are some very skillful hypocrites in the church. I mean, you know, just reading in, in first, uh, third John this morning, Demetrius. I mean, John evidently set this man aside uh, to the ministry, and now he's uh, a tyrant in the church. And so somebody set him aside, and, and it's going to happen. Uh, and so Paul's quite frank about it. There's going to be hypocrites that sneak in. Notice what he says. Your sins follow after. There's no perfect justice in this life. If we're sincere and prayerful and honest, then we move forward. We're going to make mistakes, and there's going to be men in office who should not be in office. Sometimes Christ will be with them in this life, and so we saw what the church would do last week. If a man sins, rebuke him before all. That there's already an antidote there, isn't there? I mean, Paul realistically is saying that this, this is going to happen. But there is that day of reckoning. Again, of which Jeremiah speaks. God shall judge the false prophets and curse them for running where they were not sent, for going where they were not called, for speaking a, a false message. It's a very solemn reminder to every one of us, as, as I've been saying to you, that every one of us is going to stand before the Lord to give an answer for the deeds of the flesh. And that means that you and I must live, as even last week we said, at Coram Deo, in the presence of God. He knows everything. He's recording everything. You can get away with murder, literally, in this life, but you'll stand before God. And you're going to be judged. And that reminds each of you here tonight to be sure you have fled to the Lord Jesus Christ. There are no second chances then. There's second chances now. You reject the gospel. You postpone. God is patient with you. But not forever. When I was pastoring in Mississippi, there was a young high school student named Drew. And it was in a very bad car accident which should have killed him. That's who walked away from him. Wasn't not in my church, but you stay in a small town long enough, you're pastored to all kinds of families. So I said, Can God spared your life that you might repent? But then a year or two, he was dead. Drug overdose. Uh, God spared his life and gave him an opportunity to repent. He didn't repent. 
God has appointed times of his patience and forgiveness. But then at death, there's no second chance. We all stand before Christ. Every one of you, boys and girls, you're going to stand before Christ to give an answer for your behavior, even as a child. That's why it's so important that you know that you are trusting in Jesus Christ alone for your salvation, covered in his righteousness, that you might stand there safely. But there's another problem as well. In God's wise providence, sometimes the church doesn't really recognize the gifts of the men in their midst, their labors that they do. And he, he adds them that uh, the good are quite evident and those which are otherwise cannot be concealed. And I think once again is that it's, it's the Lord who's going to reward. We don't need the praise of men. What we want is on that day to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. And everything that's been done for him, he says that a cup of cold water in his name uh, is honored by him. We don't need to seek that honor now. No, we can have personal confidence that the Lord himself is going to reward us all of grace, reward us for our attempts to serve him, our attempts to serve him in the church, our attempts to ordain caution, balance. He knows. Men might despise us for that which we do, but he knows. He takes notice. So God leads his church here in this great work of ordination. He teaches us to do it with caution and balance and confidence. So very important for us now as a young congregation. We want ruin And as God brings men into the congregation, the temptation will be, well, he's been a Christian for a good while and he seems to be a godly man and without really knowing the man rushing into their dwellings. You hear the Spirit speaking to us in the out Presbyterian Church. Don't do it. Be sure that as you get to know the men in the congregation that you, you really know them. You know the pastor's heart and you know their life so that we will not uh, hands on face to them. It does make a difference if a man comes to us as a, an elder from another reformed church with a reputation. Even then we don't just automatically move a man into office. We didn't know. And then for those of you that will uh, one day be in the ministry or some of us here are in the ministry, this addresses another problem. And that is uh, more than likely you're going to have a church uh, where you've got an elder, you pretty sure shouldn't be an elder. But in God's providence, he is an elder. And what's your role as a pastor in that church, or as a church member even in that church? This man, Christ in his providence, for whatever reason, placed in office. He's an elder that Christ has given to me, and I must respect him in his office, even as Christ says, they sit in the seat of Moses, you do as they say, not as they do, and you pray for him and you try to mentor him. But you don't fight against him. You don't complain that I've got a bunch of unconverted elders. No, you labor in that situation. 
Christ has given to you. Christ in this thing, we seek the Spirit, then we're going to see more well-grounded, balanced churches through which Christ himself will call many from the world of himself. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Antioch Presbyterian Church. We are located in the historic Cashville community of Woodruff, South Carolina, near the intersection of South Carolina Highways 101 and 417. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit AntiochPCA.com.